0: Hey friends, it's Dora. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping notes. First off, this is a serialized podcast, so if you're new here, go ahead, go back to episode one, and we'll see you over there. Secondly, if you love the podcast and want more content, I'm going to direct you to our website, www.thatcreepypodcast.com. There you'll find links for merch, socials, extra bonus content, pretty much anything you could want. That's it for now. Welcome back to The Search for John Smith. This is a story exploring the search of one missing person, the remnants of corrupted reputation, and the darkness of our hometowns. This is That Creepy Podcast.
1: I might have found something.
2: Better hide it then. Time's up. We have company.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: It's so dark down here. Obviously. I shot a glare at Lawrence, even though it was too dark to see. Surely he could feel it even if nothing outside the direct beams of our flashlights was visible. Because it was dark. Dark, damp, and miserable. We had walked down a set of old steps from the back alley down into a low storage cellar. From there, we'd found a square hatch, and Lawrence, per Adora's instructions, had used his switchblade to pop open the plywood cover, revealing a very unwelcome chasm. I had quickly sat on the ledge of the opening and tossed myself into the unknown, leaving Lawrence to quietly swear behind me. I silently hoped he had perceived my brashness as bravery and not what it actually was, my body moving as quickly as possible for fear of all the feelings catching up. And now here we were, tiptoeing our way through the crumbling tunnels. My handheld recorder tucked into my shirt pocket, leaving one hand free to brace against the wall.
2: What do you think these were for? The tunnels? I don't know if you could still call them tunnels anymore. I mean, they're almost entirely collapsed. All those years on the force and climbing down here may be the most dangerous thing I've done. You know what? I'll take that back. This one time. What's that?
1: Is that the train? The red bricks of the tunnel rumbled. Dirt shifted and fell. Neither of us moved. Neither of us dared to breathe. The train passed, and the relief was palpable.
2: If we're under the train, that means we're headed out of town. Dora said the tunnel's connected to more than the businesses, but she never mentioned going under the train. What's west of the city past the train tracks?
1: West Harker is where the money lives, so it's mostly trees, land, and big historic houses plus the city cemetery, and the First Baptist Church.
2: And do you happen to know anyone in these big historic houses?
1: I know everyone. But that's not what you're asking, is it? Nope. This is not the time to get into my daddy issues, McComfrey.
2: Oh, I agree. Figured it might distract you from the tunnel, though. You sounded scared for a second.
1: What, the train? You were scared too. The walls were falling down for God. Lawrence. What is that? We'd been walking along, climbing and squeezing through the more collapsed parts of the path, counting the hatches in the ceiling as we passed under them. Hatches I assumed opened into other buildings or random spots in the ground, possibly overgrown with grass. I stepped through what appeared to be a doorway and stopped in my tracks, staring at what Lawrence's flashlight had illuminated several feet ahead.
2: Oh, human bones. Great. Just what this day needed.
1: Lawrence nonchalantly squatted to visually examine the collection of bones, then gently nudged the pile out of our path with his boot and continued onward. I watched in horror.
2: What's wrong, Bradford? Dora warned us this place was dangerous. Come on.
1: And just like that, my feet were moving again. We continued on until the path went from unstable to completely blocked with rubble, then backtracked to the nearest hatch. It appeared to have been opened recently... The dirt and general grime that caked the other entrance as we passed had clearly been disturbed, and the lip had dark brown smudges. There's no water coming in this one. It must open into a building.
2: Any guess what we're under?
1: Uh, maybe one of the houses? Lawrence sighed his signature sigh the sigh of a man twice his age, but just as tired. He flicked his switchblade free with a fluid motion and began working the piece of wood free. I caught a glimpse of a handgun on a body holster beneath his rain jacket. Habit from being on the force? Standard precaution? Or was he just as worried as I was? I slipped my hand into my own jacket, letting the feel of my lighter and travel-sized hairspray comfort me. The wood lifted free. Lawrence's expression told me he'd expected a tougher fight with the latch, but he simply slipped the door inside and lifted himself into the dark entrance.
2: Crawl space, we're clear.
1: I lifted myself into the space, ignoring Lawrence's helping hand. It certainly was a crawl space. There was maybe an inch between the top of my head and the ceiling, and Lawrence didn't clear the space at all, having to hunch to keep from hitting his head on the beams above. Our flashlights illuminated a small door on the other end of the space, hidden behind cardboard boxes. I opened one of the boxes as Lawrence shoved the rest out of the way. Hymnals. Oh God, we're in the church. Pastor Shaw's not gonna like this.
2: Shaw? Like the mayor?
1: Yeah, brothers. Small town stuff.
2: Hell of a thing.
1: Wait, Lawrence, what's that? There was a noise, a small noise. A whimper combined with running water. Even over the rain, the noise stood out as strange. Empty churches don't whimper untouched faucets don't run. We followed the noise through the door and were spat out in the sanctuary. The room was illuminated by the streetlights just outside. The rain pattered against the window casting strange shadows across the wooden pews. And the noise continued. Everything was unsettled. I was unsettled. Only the stiffness of Lawrence's shoulders gave away the uneasiness in his body. We walked through the aisle, watching for suspicious movement between the pews and the corners. With the exception of the noise, there was no other signs of a presence in the church. Still, there was no such thing as too much caution. We followed the noise to a door I know opens to the church kitchen. Lawrence presses his back against the wall beside the swinging door and signals for me to do the same. When he pushes the door open, it bumps against something solid, making a scraping sound against the linoleum flooring. Someone had barricaded the door with a chair. The whimpering and water stop. Whoever it was now knew that we were here. Lawrence quickly pushes through the door and enters the dark room, drawing his gun. I follow, lighter and hairspray in hand. As my eyes adjust to the emergency light, the room appears empty. The faucet of the industrial-sized metal sink at the other end of the room drips. I walk over to investigate. Oh my God. I was not prepared for its contents. The mixture of what looks to be blood and water slowly swirls its way down the drain. I hear Lawrence's breath catch and look back. His hands are raised in the air, finger off the trigger of his gun, and someone stands directly behind him.
3: Get out of here. John?
1: John steps out from behind Lawrence, keeping his knife pressed against Lawrence's back. Lawrence doesn't move, his well-being now at the mercy of this erratic, mysterious ghost of a human. That moment felt like a car crash. The adrenaline of knowing there's an imminent disaster but extended several heartbeats. What the hell, John? John and I stare at each other like strangers. I can't tell if he even registers it's me. His eyes blank, unfocused. I'm reminded once again of that trapped animal wandering the library. Lawrence remains in surrender, eyes staring straight ahead. My eyes are drawn to John's face. Bruised then down towards his arms, which are covered in cut after cut, beginning to bleed anew. They drip with water, and blood begins to run down from the cuts, merging with the droplets. The drops grow heavier and fall to the ground, one by one. The drops hitting the linoleum is the only sound that reads through my heart thumping. Lawrence breaks the
2: silence. I'm going to turn around now, John.
1: And he did. Slowly. Oh, so slowly. John's eyes flash, and for a terrifying moment, I think he's going to use the blade. My heart continues thumping in my chest unevenly.
3: But he lets Lawrence turn. Jory? Why are you here? Are you working with them?
1: This last question is posed to Lawrence. He answers like he's speaking to a broken, wild animal. Maybe he is.
2: With who, John? Them. Who, the sheriff?
1: Not the reply I had expected. Not even close. John didn't answer, his eyes going dark again, his lower lip hanging heavy. John didn't move his knife point from against Lawrence's abdomen. Lawrence kept his hands in the air.
2: My name is Lawrence Blake McComfrey. I'm a private investigator and a friend of Jory's. We're not here to trap you. Actually, the opposite. I want to get you out.
0: (sighs) I set up Lawrence and John in the study. Made sure they were comfortable. Hopefully that helps John start talking again. Looks like you didn't need the walkie. Yeah, sorry about
1: that. Uh, the outside world kinda disappeared once we were down there. <laughs> well, literal tunnel vision, I guess.
0: Hmm. How are you doing? I have no idea.
1: My brain's been kinda blank since the break-in.
0: Uh, that seems normal, actually. Look, I have something to tell you, but you have to promise not to react right away. There is no good way to say this. Um, I'm the reason, the reason you've been dreaming, having
1: nightmares. I look at her. Horror and shock and betrayal and confusion warring with each other. But I stay Quiet.
0: You have a gift, Dory, and you suppress it at every turn. Your sleeping pills and other meds are none of my business, I know that, but I thought if you could just start dreaming again, maybe it'd help you find what you were looking for, like it did in the past, before, before the fire stuff, before you left us. How? Mushrooms and mugwort, mostly. Just a microdose in the tea, I always blend for you. I had no idea it would cause you nightmares, though. I also didn't consider your upped tea intake when you're stressed, and you've obviously been really, really stressed. I am so sorry.
1: Yeah, you did cross a line. That was that. The time for talking was over. It was late, and we were both tired this betrayal would have to be addressed another time. We sat next to each other on the floor of Oakland House, backs against the old wallpaper-covered wall, straining our ears to try and make out what John and Lawrence were saying in the next room. The small, reserved cadence of John's being the most frequent, with the rumbling, confident sound of Lawrence's occasionally cutting in. I guess he started talking again. A small but hopeful development in yet another night of horror. And that's how I fell asleep. Listening to the mumble of voices, knowing John was alive, and wondering why the hell he'd run in the first place.
3: Why are you recording?
2: I'm glad you asked. Two reasons. One, you went nonverbal and disassociated at the church, and this is a delicate and frankly risky situation we're involved in. I can't risk the cops assuming we kidnapped you, which they will, and you going mute again. Two, I don't trust you. You're erratic, and we don't actually know what's going on. With that said, none of that means I don't want to help you. That makes sense. Jory trusts you, and I trust Jory. Show me I should trust you, too. Let's start with the obvious, the cuts on your arms. Where are they from?
3: Myself, I think. That's what I assume since they match my puck and knife anyway. Sometimes I'm here, and sometimes I'm there, but lately, I've been slipping out. I'll be here 1 minute and then suddenly I'm somewhere else. Sometimes I'm somewhere else bleeding. Sounds like someone else we know. The brain is a wild place. Yeah, it is. Next question. What were you doing in the church? I go there at night to clean myself and sleep. That's that's it. Did you get into the tunnels? Yes, I stay in them during the day. Why? You know why. Let's assume I don't. Is it because you're running? Not running. Once, yes, but now I'm hiding. From? Have you... have you ever heard of the Tucker Crematorium?
1: I was shaken awake by Lawrence two hours later. The sun was still down and there was no sign of Dora, aside from the creak of the chair in her office. I calculated the last day's events. How long had it been since I slept in the bed? Two nights? Three? I had no idea. And before that, how long had it been since I slept well? I didn't care to know the answer. Lawrence didn't say anything just motioned for me to follow him, and I did. We stopped just outside the door to the study.
2: He wants to talk to you. How'd it go? There's a lot, it's a miracle that boy's even alive. I bandaged him up the best I could while we talked, so that part's sorted, for now.
1: That's all you're gonna tell me?
2: Just talk to him. We'll compare notes later, Bradford. I'll be hounding Dora for a cup of whatever if you need me. (laughs)
1: Just watch what she puts on it. John? John sat on the window seat opposite from the door. He sat, gazing out the cracked curtains where a shade of pink was just beginning to paint the sky. I made my way across the room and sit on the seat beside him. John?
3: Uh, that guy Lawrence said you were sleeping. Sorry if he woke you up.
1: <laughs> Don't start apologizing on Humpty Dumpty's behalf now. You'll never stop.
3: So also sorry about the blood all over your house. I can I can clean it up for you.
1: That's what you're sorry for? Not about dropping off the face of the earth and giving me a heart attack for the last few weeks? John, I can handle a little blood. What I can't handle is making plans and then... How...
3: how much do you know about the Tucker crematorium 20 minutes from here? Don't know it. Should I? My family runs it. My dad inherited it from his dad, like most family trades, but with more dead people except it wasn't it used to be part of a small town but over the years before i was born the town became unincorporated territory and my dad bought the land my grandpa wasn't all there it's known for not being right in the head so when he died my dad swore he'd run the place better be a better man i was really young then but i still remember my pa declaring that over peas and chicken at the dinner table i wish he'd stuck to that it wasn't long before he started changing don't get me wrong jory my family has never been normal my dad was a pentecostal fanatic and my ma kept us homeschooled believing we'd be corrupted by the world otherwise they told us the end times were close and we lived in the middle of nowhere so don't think my life was normal before but he breathed the smoke he worked the kiln he made friends with the dead and that was that It was like the metal leash had been cut. He built more crematories all over the land, small ones and sheds. Tiny sheds dotted the property like pins on a map. I didn't go near them. They smelled like something you should leave alone. And that was little Johnny's life. And what about your brother? He saw the snap too, but when he turned 17, dad took him out of school to help at the business. He'd always thought it was weird too, the way things had gone. He talked about getting out once he turned 18 and taking me with him, but that didn't happen. After six months or so, he started losing it, too.
1: That must have been hard on you.
3: Yeah, it was.
1: There must be more, if you're running.
3: There was David.
1: David. No last name. At least, none that John knew. John had been watching his dad and brother's mental stability decline for several years at that point. He had grown accustomed to ignoring the discarded coffins around the property and smells coming from the sheds, choosing to spend increasingly more time in his room or wandering the woods beyond the crematories. He said he felt peaceful there. It was on one of these trips to the wood that he met David. John explained that David was an older boy he'd met when he was nearly 17. His birthday was getting closer, and John's father hadn't stopped reminding him of his responsibility to join the family business. But to John, that meant joining the family madness. So he'd taken to walking increasingly deeper into the woods each evening. Daring to play with the idea of freedom is how he put it. My heart had broken at the words. Then one day, David was there. He'd appeared like a ghost, not there one day, then tilting John's world the next. David was 18 and claimed to be backpacking across the country, leaving a bad family situation in Boston. He had made camp in the woods before hitching a ride west when John found him. John had thought about turning him in for trespassing. His upbringing screamed at him to keep away, screamed that David was corrupt in everything his parents had tried to keep from him. But then he remembered that impending birthday the impending insanity he saw as a family curse. And he'd rebelled. John and David became fast friends, much to David's
3: demise. He'd meant to pass through, not stay a whole week. We spent every day together just hanging out at his camp. We walked to the local gas station and bought junk food. I hadn't even known there was an open gas station within walking distance of the property. That's how sheltered I was. He told me about his parents, About his childhood in Boston, and I told him about mine.
1: Then what? He just left you? Are you trying to find him, or is he who you're hiding from?
3: (laughs) I wish. No, I I hadn't noticed just how fucked up my dad and brother were, but I did after a week with David. I wanted to go west with him, and he thought it was a good idea, so we planned my escape, but we were caught. Oh, God. My dad beat me. Started yelling how he'd rather have a dead son than one corrupted by the world. My mom, she was just cowering in the corner of the desk. My brother just watched back inside. David, he pushed my dad off me. He yelled at me to run. I didn't know what else to do, so I did. The last I saw of David, he was being dragged into the house, my family house, and I just ran.
1: I had lost track of the hours John and I had been talking. The sun was past blushing the sky, and now warmed our cheeks through the curtains. Lawrence had been lurking outside the cracked door, no doubt making sure John's story was consistent, but Dora took this opportunity to push the door open and lean on the frame. The heaviness of the story was visible on their bodies and in the way they each held twin tumblers of amber liquid. Apparently Dora had more than tea and coffee in the office. Lawrence looked more exhausted than I'd ever seen him. The bags under his eyes dark, John cut his gaze over to the remorseful pair, his body language instantly becoming more
2: guarded.
3: What happened after? That's unimportant.
2: As I stated earlier, I wholeheartedly disagree.
3: I was a fool. I hadn't expected my dad to come after me like he did. He'd leave me alone for years, then the letters would come in, then my brother would appear and the nightmare would start all over. I'd have to clean my tracks, disappear. That was life. Tell her what changed. My brother died. Suddenly, my dad wasn't satisfied with just tormenting me. He needed me. I moved to Harker, figured living closer to home could buy me a few more years of freedom before I went back. Maybe it'll appease him, I thought, and it didn't. I was about to go with my dad when you and I talked, Tori.
1: Dora glared at me from the doorway, her eyes boring holes into me. She knocked back the last of her glass.
0: Let's call it even.
1: And walked away.
4: Hey, Dora.
0: Hey, Franklin. I just heard.
4: Yeah, it's been one hell of a day.
0: Is it true? It was suicide?
4: Looks like it. The spray of gunpowder shows close range, and there was no breaking and entering into the home. Wife and daughter both have alibis, or so says Morgan and her dad.
0: Hmm. How are you doing?
4: Been thinking a lot about when we were kids. Things were easier, weren't they? Just you, me, Jory, Morgan, and Henry wreaking havoc. Sheriff Davidson chasing us off people's property.
0: Yeah, now you're the acting sheriff. And locking us up how the tides have turned.
4: Yeah, and you're spouting conspiracy theories for a pretty penny.
0: Hey, fuck you.
4: <laughs> That's my line. Told you the next time we'd all be together was a funeral, just not Jory's like I thought.
0: Watch your mouth, Franklin. Speaking of which, have you talked to Henry?
4: Yeah, he's getting in tomorrow night.
0: Who's that? Oh, we're talking now? I don't know, are you planning on drugging me again? What? Gotta go, Franklin, see you in two days. What's wrong? You have crazy eyes. John's family has a grave plot. So? So, according to Lawrence's
1: binder. Does Lawrence know you took that? No, but let's focus. According to this, John's family had a funeral for John and put his fake remains
0: in the family plot. And? What if they're Davids? Oh boy, I'm scared of where this is going. Jory, let's think for a moment. Ten minutes ago, we heard Sheriff Davidson died, and you locked yourself in the bathroom. Now you want to commit a crime? This is clearly mania. No, this is justice. Hey, Lawrence. Is John with you? Relax, I didn't mean to wake you up. Well, the sheriff's dead and Jory's about to go grave robbing in a fit of mania, so yeah, it's kind of an emergency. Podcast is a bi weekly podcast produced and written by Theodora. Really nice. Edited by Seth Johnson. Music by Theodora. Special thanks to voice actors Katie Collier, Joseph Teagle, Nathaniel Curtis, and Ian Collier. Find us at our website at www.thatcreepypodcast.com and our Instagram at thatcreepypodcast. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.